the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Today on Cornerstone Connection with Pastor Gary Hamrick. Real love is calling, listen, truth opens up your eyes. Mercy is waiting for you with every sunrise. I don't care how long you've been a Christian, we can always be reminded about what the new life is supposed to look like and how it is that sometimes, unfortunately, even if you've been a Christian for a long period of time, your flesh likes to rise up from time to time and dominate your spirit. But the man or the woman in Christ is called to live a life where the spirit is dominant and the flesh is crucified. And that is a process. That is a journey. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Ephesians. Perhaps one of the more common dangers that we as believers face after years of Bible study is none other than developing an apathetic attitude toward our growth. Whether we think we've learned enough and we're good to go or otherwise, And we can easily lose sight of just how important it is that we get our guidance from God's Word. As Pastor Gary will teach you in his message today, we as believers would do well to regularly be on guard so as to not let the flesh dominate in our lives. In his study, you'll learn that by reading the Word daily, you'll be sure to know what a life in the Spirit looks like. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of Ephesians chapter 4 with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. If you've been with us for very long, you know by now that the book of Ephesians, this letter to the church at Ephesus, is neatly divided into two sections. There are six chapters. The first section, chapters 1, 2, and 3, Paul lays out all that God has done for us, and he uses all these wonderful words in the first chapter in particular to talk about how we've been we've been redeemed, we've been predestined, we've been adopted, we are loved, we've been saved. And he goes on and on to talk about all that God has done on our behalf. We didn't earn it, we don't deserve it, God does it because of his love for us. And then after Paul makes that argument to help us to understand the foundation of our faith, he moves on to the second part, which is what we're in now, chapters 4, 5, and 6, which have to do with what we must do in response and how we must live in response to what God has first done for us. So that's where we are now into chapter 4. We didn't get very far uh, last week in chapter 4. We only got the first uh, 16 verses. But the two main themes of chapter 4 
again, our unity and maturity. You'll remember in verse 3, if you just glance back to verse 3 here of chapter 4, where Paul says, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. The exhortation there is for us to keep the unity of the Spirit, that God creates unity by His Spirit, and it is up to the church to maintain it. That we have to recognize unity and we have to work hard at keeping it. He says, make every effort. Why is it an effort? Because unity does not come naturally. Unity comes because we work at it. Because we recognize that in all our differences in the body of Christ, and there are many, and our differences add to the richness of the body of Christ, we still have to have respect for our differences, some tolerance for our differences, some mutual appreciation for our differences, and recognize that in our differences, God works to complement one another so that the body of Christ can be built up. But it's easy to take issue with differences and to not get along. And that's not just true for a church family, that's true for any family. And you have to work hard at maintaining unity. So these are the two main themes here of chapter 4, unity and then also maturity. If you'll glance again further uh, in the same chapter around verse 11, where it talks about how it was Christ who gave some, meaning in the church, to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for works of service. Why? So that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity, there's the word again, in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, there's maturity, attaining the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. And so Jesus has raised up within the church certain roles in, in order to maintain that unity and help to bring people into maturity and the, the pastor is also to be the teacher to equip God's people for works of service. You know, this is not about, you know, what people can do for me. This is about what we can do for each other. The mindset should be we are people who want to serve one another uh, out of love for Christ. But in between these verses 3 that I read earlier and 11, 12, and 13 here, Paul talks about how Jesus descended into the lower earthly regions. We spent a considerable amount of time last week talking about this. I'm not going to rehash it, but only to say that he goes, he descends in the time of his death when he's crucified, dead, and buried. His spirit descends into the lower earthly regions. We talked about Hades and Sheol. He empties the paradise side of Hades. Those were the Old Testament saints who had been made temporarily righteous through the sacrificial system. Jesus goes to the paradise side of Sheol. He promised the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. It was there that the Old Testament saints who believed in God by faith through righteous works of the sacrificial system were then able to put their trust in Christ who presents himself on paradise side. He then leads the captives in his train. This is what Paul writes here in this chapter, the train meaning of his robe. He leads this great procession of the Old Testament saints to heaven. And now paradise side of Sheol is empty, and heaven is now occupied, and all of us now who put our faith and trust in Jesus post the crucifixion of Christ 
Our spirits go immediately to be with the Lord in heaven. So the reason why Paul goes into all that detail is to establish the fact that Jesus has authority over the church. And thus with one who has authority, he appoints some to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastor teacher. It's really a hyphenated word in the Greek. It's the Granville Sharp rule. So it's not pastors and teachers. The pastor is to be a teacher. Not every teacher is a pastor, but every pastor should be a teacher. And so he presents to the church these gifts, these callings, these offices to maintain the unity and maturity within the church. And so that's where we left off last week. And because of the unity and maturity, he ends there in verses 14 by saying, then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men and their deceitful scheming. He said, instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up Become mature into him who is the head, that is Christ. Jesus is Lord over his church. And from him the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does uh, does its work. Now this is where we left off at this point because now Paul transitions into from the rest of this chapter through the end of the letter into an understanding about the new life. And what he's going to do, he's going to, he's going to touch on topics related to this is what the new life in Christ looks like. And he's going to start to talk here in the closing couple of chapters about attitudes and thoughts. He's going to talk about our speech our, and our words. He's going to talk about temper. He's going to talk about work ethic. He's also going to, in the chapters that follow, he's going to talk about the treatment of others. He's going to talk about our sexuality. He's going to talk about the use of alcohol. And then he's going to talk about various roles in the home and the workplace. If somebody thinks the Bible is just an antiquated book, you don't understand how relevant the Bible really is for daily life. I mean, every single one of these topics we can all relate to. And so the Bible is the handbook for life. And Paul is going to, by inspiration of the Spirit, address these things so that we can understand. What does a new life look like in Christ? Now, for some of you, this might be Christianity 101. But, you know, I can tell you that even as I was prepping for tonight's teaching, and I'm studying through these things, and I'm looking at all these topics, I was challenged in many ways in my own life. I don't care how long you've been a Christian. We can always be reminded about what the new life is supposed to look like And how it is that sometimes, unfortunately, even if you've been a Christian for a long period of time, your flesh likes to rise up from time to time and dominate your spirit. But the man or the woman in Christ is called to live a life where the spirit is dominant and the flesh is crucified. And that is a process. That is a journey. That is a disposition of the Christian to live out your life in such a way that you will daily die to self And you will live for the glory of God and you will surrender and submit yourself every day to the power of God's spirit in your life and crucify those things in your flesh that want to rise up and dominate. So this is where Paul's going now in this passage here. And so look at verse 17. He says, so I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord. Okay, this is not a suggestion. He says, I insist on this in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do. In the futility of their thinking, they are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Due to the hardening of their hearts, having lost all sensitivity, 
They have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. All right, now, obviously, there are two major terms, particularly in the New Testament, but really all throughout the Bible, regarding people, Jew and Gentile. When he speaks here about Gentiles, and he starts this verse in verse 17 by saying, you know, don't live as the Gentiles. He doesn't really mean it as, you know, Gentiles versus Jews. He's using that term Gentile to communicate the idea of someone who is without God. There were plenty of Gentiles who came to faith in Jesus. There are plenty of Gentiles who came to faith in the Lord. I'm a Gentile who came to faith in the Lord. Most of you are Gentiles who have come to faith in in the Lord. So Jew and Gentile alike can come to faith in the Lord. He's not disparaging Gentile believers. He's just using that as a generic term to denote those who are without God. He's referring to those who are unsaved, to those who are atheists. Atheists from two Greek words, atheos, without God. Okay, so that's the one. And he's saying to those who are believers, don't live like those people. Those are the people that you used to be before you came to know Christ. Don't live like the Gentiles. And he, and he, and he describes them there in the following verses. He basically says they, they have futile thinking. He says they have darkened understanding. They are alienated from God. They have hard hearts. They're ignorant. They're ins- insensitive. And they indulge in immorality with the continual lust for more. So don't be like them. So he's he's drawing this contrast. He says, don't live like those people. That's how you used to live. That's how you were. But now in Christ, you're to live a new life. And in the verses that follow now, we're going to look at, through the end of this chapter, we're going to be looking at 10 attributes of the new life. Because I I just looked from the rest of this passage down through the end of of this fourth chapter, and I just kind of highlighted in my Bibles different particular things and characteristics that Paul mentions here should characterize the one who's walking in the Lord, the new life. And so we're going to go through this list. So 10 things. So here's the first thing. The new life has to be learned. The new life has to be learned. Let me just begin here in verse 20 and read through the end of the chapter, and then we'll come back and, and go through these 10 points. Verse 20, he says, you, however, did not come to know Christ that way. Okay, you're not, you're not to live that way. Surely you heard of him and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we are all members of one body, talking about the church, Christ's, Christ's body. He, he uses that term as, as an analogy about how we're all different parts joined together, but we form one body. He says, in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you were still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with his own hands, that he may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling, and slander 
along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. So here's the first thing in our list. It's number one, the new life has to be learned. In verses 21 and 22, you can go back up now to what we just read, and you'll notice the word taught is used twice. There in verse 21, he says, surely you heard of him and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. Verse 22, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by his deceitful desires. So again, the idea here is that the new life in Christ really has to be taught. You know, everything new, we have to learn. And when you were born physically, you had to learn everything. You you had to learn how to walk. You had to learn how to talk. You you had to learn how to tie your shoes. You you had to, you know, later learn how to drive. Everything about life that is new has to be taught. And so the same thing is true when we're born again. When you're born again, you have to first learn how to walk. Now, that actually is the word that is used here in the ESV in the New King James. In verse 17 in the ESV, it says, talks about how you must uh, not walk as the Gentiles do. NIV uses the word live, but it's the Greek word peripateo, and, and it means to trod down a path. So it's, it's kind of the, the, the path that you're on, the way of life. We have to learn when we become Christians how to walk, how to live your life out. I remember years ago, I uh, was doing a wedding at Fort Myer Chapel uh, on the base of Fort Myer. And if you've ever been to a military wedding, I mean, it's done top notch. And everything is in sync and everything is timed just right. And, you know, you, you're, you have to get in at the certain time that you've, you're doing your wedding. You have to get out at a certain time because there are other weddings that are coming in after you. And the wedding coordinator for, the, for this particular wedding that I did years ago was a general's wife. And she was, I mean, she, she'd spit nails. I'm telling you what, she was tough. She was tough. And I remember in the ceremony during the rehearsal the night before the wedding that the bridesmaids were doing this staggered walk da- down the aisle. You know, it's, it's with the music, how they go like this and like this and then like this and then like this. Okay, you've seen them do like that? Oh, that ticked her off. She stopped the middle, in the middle of the rehearsal. She says, ladies, do you walk like that in real life? Who walks like that? And all the girls are just like, I don't know. Who walks like that? I don't know. Well, don't do it in the wedding, for goodness sakes. Walk naturally. And she had to show them how to walk. So I was a little scared. I got to be honest with you. Well, this is the idea here. When we become Christians, we have to learn how to walk. And we have to learn new things. You know, there, there's, a whole new, there's a whole new way of thinking. There's a whole new way of living. There's a whole new way of relating. There's a whole new way of raising your kids. There's a whole new way of managing money. There's a whole new way of relating to your boss and relating to your employees. I mean, everything in life changes when you become a Christian. And not all of it will just become natural. Like, oh, I know how to do all this. So as you grow in your faith, this is a journey of maturity, And the first thing we need to understand here, he uses the word taught twice in these verses, is that the new life has to be learned. The second thing that we see here in verse 22, he says here in verse 22, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude 
of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God into righteousness and holiness. Now notice there in your Bibles, to put off your old self, verse 22, and to put on the new self. So point number two he makes here is that the new life has to break ties with the old life. And he describes it like a garment, like a coat, like clothing. He says, you have to put off, you have to take off the old life and you have to put on the new life. And so he uses like clothing, like an analogy of like taking off some old garment and putting on the new. Because this is a new way of life. And so he says, it's, it's like changing out a garment. You know, think about it like this. You know, it, when somebody serves time in prison, and then after they're done serving time, they get out of jail. They are not going to continue to wear that orange jumpsuit. I mean, that would be ridiculous. Because you realize, I, I have now freedom. I've done my time. I got freedom now, off with the orange jumpsuit, and on with nice clothing. So the, the idea is, you know, as Christians, why do we still want to act like we used to before we came to know Christ? This is a new life. Put off all that old stuff. Put on a new life in Christ. I've done my share of funerals in, in my lifetime in the ministry. And when funerals have open, open caskets, which... I'm not a big fan of. I mean, it's, it's personal choice, personal opinion, but you know, I've made it clear to my family, casket closed, casket closed. Okay. You're, you're not really in the casket anyway, right? That's just, you know, there's an old epitaph. Here lies the body of old man Pease. That was his last name buried beneath the flowers and trees. Pease ain't here. Just the pod Pease shelled out and went to God. Okay. It's just a shell. But I can't tell you how many times I've done funerals and family members will parade by an open casket and say, oh, doesn't she look beautiful? No. They put lipstick on a corpse. How is that beautiful? All right. Now, when you are living your new life like your old life, all you're doing is putting lipstick on a corpse, friends. You can't dress up your life in Christ. It's not about dressing up the old life. It is about crucifying the old life and living a new life in Christ. This is not, you know, some people have this misunderstanding. When I become a Christian, God's good and God's grace and God loves me. So I've accepted Jesus into my heart and I I just add Jesus into my lifestyle, what I'm doing. And there's there's no change. There's no necessary for any change because God accepts me just the way I am. Well, he does accept me just the way you are. He accepted me just the way I am. But he loves us enough never to want us to remain as we are. And so there has to be change in our lives. We have to realize I'm not living for myself anymore. I'm I'm living for the glory of God. And living for the glory of God means I make some changes in my life. And I'm going to die to myself. And I'm going to live more for the glory of God. i got to break ties with the old life. I'm going to make some radical decisions here about some of the old stuff. Number three, in verse 23, he said to be made new in the attitude of your minds. Number three, the new life begins with the renewed mind, meaning new thoughts and attitudes. The Bible has a few things to say about renewing our minds. Romans 12, 2 says, do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. By the renewing of your minds. Why is it important for us to renew our minds? 
Because the thing that stands between your old life and your new life is your mind. It's the way you think. It's your attitudes about life. We have to change our way of thinking. And we have to, as Paul said in 2 Corinthians 10, 5, we have to take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. Some people think, well, as long as I, you know, aren't, I'm not hurting anybody by just what I'm thinking in my head. Or you're hurting yourself. Because when you entertain things in your mind, rather than taking them captive and making it subject to Christ, then you, in essence, are going to be hurting yourself. And all sin first begins in the mind. That's all we have time for today on Cornerstone Connection. Pastor Gary will have more to share from Ephesians next time. But right now, we'd like to tell you how you can continue studying God's Word on your own. Did you know that you can learn from the Bible? You don't need a degree or years of study to understand what God has to say. Just open up the Scripture and ask the Holy Spirit to open your eyes and heart to the message printed there. If you'd like some additional resources to help with your personal time studying the Bible, we've compiled a list for you on our website at cornerstoneconnection.cc. Just search under the Teachings tab. While you're there, feel free to listen to more of Pastor Gary's messages in Ephesians or in the other books of the Bible he's explored. You can also subscribe to our podcast or take Cornerstone Connection anywhere with the mobile app to listen to commentary on the Word. Do you live in or near Leesburg, Virginia? If so, we want to meet you. Come join us at Cornerstone Chapel to spend time in fellowship, worship, and studying Scripture together. Your presence is most welcome. Find out more at our website. Again, that's cornerstoneconnection.cc. Thanks for joining us today, and we hope you'll tune in again for our next edition of Cornerstone Connection. They say you're a wandering soul That you've got no place to go But still you know You're not alone General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.